the three things that we can do something about are what I call the primary pathological triad. It's number one, and that's probably the most important. The second is a lingering pathogen of some sort, because once you've got a lingering pathogen in the system, you've got this constant conflict between the Zheng Qi and the pathogen. And the third one is this disconnection between the heart-kidney axis, which is the thermoregulation system of the body, the water-fire balance. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological, the podcast for practitioners and students of acupuncture and East Asian medicine. If you're new here, welcome. And if you're a regular listener, I've got a great conversation with Will McLean coming up today. By the way, if you're familiar with Will's writing, Eastland Press has a new edition of the Clinical Handbook of Internal Medicine coming out, and you can snag it with a discount for another week or two. Pop on over to the podcasts page on the website and click on the Eastland Press icon for details. If you listen to the podcasts here for any length of time, you'll know that I've got an interest in marketing. Actually, what I have is an interest in how people connect with each other, make meaning, and create sense in their world, which is partly what attracted me to the practice of medicine in the first place. I've also got this interest in what I like to think of as first principles, the stuff that underlies any process or manifestation, kind of like us East Asian medicine practitioners think of yin and yang, or the resonant manifestation of the five phases. First principles are not like scripts, hacks, or shortcuts, which I suspect are of limited value, as those focus on results rather than on process. First principles in the area of marketing are the building blocks of how we make meaning and how we communicate with those that we wish to serve. You have probably heard me talk about Seth Godin, Uncle Seth, as I like to think of him, he's the smart and funny uncle I wish I had had as a kid. I recently read his latest book, This Is Marketing, and I want to tell you something. It's not a book about marketing. Reading this book could change how you interact with your spouse, dial down your activity to those idiots over there, and open your sense of inquiry into situations that seem confusing and without a lickological sense. If all you learned from reading this book is, it's for them, it's not for you, then this book would have been worth your time. I think this has been one of those reoccurring lessons that's come around for me as a business person. It's come around again and again. For a long time, I thought I could help everybody with acupuncture. What I've come to discover is, I can't. Understanding it's for them, it's not for you not only lets me take myself off the hook, it lets the people who may not be ready to use our medicine, it lets them off the hook too. It's not a failure on anyone's part, and it saves a lot of wasted time and emotion. And beyond the arena of marketing our practices, I found that pausing for a moment to remember, it's not for me, it's for them. This helps me to better understand aspects of life and culture that don't make any sense to me. Like, I don't know, stadium sports, small dog stinky tofu, or uh, Kia Soul cars. I think it just comes down to honest differences. Differences that separate us into dissimilar crowds. But consider this, wherever there's an outside, there's also an inside. And I'm reminded by Uncle Seth's work 
that we can focus and be generous with the inside, with those who we wish to serve. And we do it best, not when we try to exclude others, but recognize that there are those who just aren't interested and not waste our valuable time or energy trying to change them. It's not for them. Keep your attention on those who our work is for and help them with the changes that they want to make. One, oh, one last thing about marketing. I'm still looking for someone who genuinely loves doing health fairs, and it shows in your paycheck too. I'd love to have a conversation with you here on the podcast. Again, it's an area that's completely out of my introvert's area of interest, but I'd like to better understand how these situations can be helpful for some people. Ping me if this is your ballywhack. I want to take a moment to answer some questions that I've gotten from some folks that have written in. This is about this um, acupuncture class that will be in Seattle next year, January 26 and 27 in Seattle, Washington at uh, Seattle Institute of East Asian Medicine. Some folks would love to be there, but they can't make it. They, I've had some questions about live streaming and online and that sort of thing. This one will not be live streamed. You got to come and get it live if you want it live. However, we will be recording it at some point, probably in the early spring. It'll be available as a uh, continuing education offering up on Geological. So if you can't make it, there's still ways of being able to get some access to the brilliance of this particular system and learn to use it effectively, and most importantly, learn to use it safely. All right. Those of you that have supported the podcast through Patreon, it's gone. All of you that signed up to support the show by becoming a Chia Logician, thank you. All y'all now can support the podcast right from the Geological website. Look for the Chia Logician menu for more details. And for those of you that have already signed up to help support the podcast, there's a newly released part two with Andrew Nugent Head on Jing Qi and Shen. If you enjoyed our first conversation, you'll love this one. And coming up next for supporters of the podcast, another guest interviewer, but more about that later. Oh yeah, one more thing. Those postcards I get in the mail, man, totally makes my day. What can I say? I'm kind of old fashioned, and I got this thing for postcards. And you creative types out there that have hand-drawn and sent something to me, oh man, I just appreciate your spirit and spark. Thanks so much. All right, friends, as ever, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy today's conversation. Hi there, I'm Yvonne Lau. I'm president here at Mayway, and we are so happy and so excited to be celebrating 50 years as the makers of plum flower tea pills, extracts, and unsulfured herbs. So thank you so much for your support over the years. People have asked us about dosage of our tea pills, what they're based on, and dosing for different conditions. So Dr. Sky Sturgeon, our Mayway Quality Assurance Manager, will answer these questions and more during the break. So stay tuned. Thanks for listening to Geological. Since 1979, Lhasa OMS, the largest acupuncture supplier in the U.S., has brought you the very best in supplies from top brands such as Sarin, DBC, Evergreen, and Mayway. Fair prices, attentive customer service, and an unrivaled selection on supplies makes them a great go-to for your acupuncture clinic. Lhasa OMS helps to foster and support our acupuncture community by bringing you podcast shows like Geological that help East Asian medicine practitioners to share their clinical experience and learn from each other.
For over 40 years, Lhasa OMS has helped both practitioners and patients by donating needles and supplies that have helped millions in need, provided schools with resources to support the training of thousands of students, and given supplies to hundreds of clinics throughout the nation. Lhasa OMS, supporting our industry and your practice with tools for your clinic and mind. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Geological. My guest today is Will McLean. Will is a longtime 30-year practitioner down in Australia. He's currently on sabbatical, where he's doing some work on one of his books. He is trained both in Australia and did some time in Hangzhou, China. In addition to teaching internationally, he is the co-author of a veritable library of books on Chinese medicine, including the three-volume series titled Clinical Handbook of Internal Medicine which, by the way, we will be talking about later in the show. Will, welcome to Geological. Thanks, Michael. Pleasure to be here. I'm really excited to be talking to you. You know, I'm excited to talk to everybody that's on my show. Imagine that. <laughs> I'm the one who invites <laughs> well, them. I think so, too. <laughs> so you've done a lot of books. You've done a lot of writing. You know, we were talking earlier before we uh, turned on the tape. A book is a lot of work. And you've got more than a few. Yeah. And anyone that hasn't done a book probably doesn't know the, the incredible effort that goes into it. I'm a little curious. Indeed. Yeah. What has incited you? Whatever got you started with writing books in the first place? Well, it was really practical because I was teaching at one of the colleges in Sydney not too long after I graduated. In fact, I think I started teaching at about 1991, 92, something like that. In those days, there just wasn't very much material. I was teaching a course on internal medicine, amongst other things. But the source materials that I'd learnt when I was at school were pretty poor. They didn't really reflect the clinical reality that I was starting to observe in practice. So I started to compile course notes, you know, things that I thought were a bit more realistic. I had some good source materials that I picked up in China when I was there. My Chinese was improving. So I started slowly to compile a series of lectures on internal medicine. So it was really your class notes in a sense. Yeah, basically, that's how it started. The first volume was certainly compiled from class notes. And then, of course, over time, as I got more and more experience in practice, those course notes became modified by what I was seeing. There was a, often quite a, an interesting divergence between the original Chinese materials and what the reality of a Western clinical practice was. I think this is something that we all go through. I know, I certainly know that I did, where we learn this theory, we learn some stuff, we get through school, and it's actually really curious when someone walks in and actually fits what we studied in school, because most <laughs> people don't. That's right. It's very, it's, it's in a unique situation. You think, oh, wow, maybe there is something in this after all. You know, I often think I'm clearly missing something here because this just fits the book. Yes, but that particular incompatibility just became more and more clear over a period of time. But anyway, that's where the book started from. That was where the first volume started from. It's sort of your journey with understanding clinical practice. Originally, it was all going to go into one book, but, you know, internal medicine is really a huge and complicated field. So the first book only covered four of the organ systems. That's all we could actually physically print, basically. Well, unless you put wheels on the thing. Yeah, that's right. It was came to a thousand pages or something. And I think in those days, the physical limit was around about a thousand pages for the paper type that we had. So my dream of having it all in one got thrown out pretty early. So we went 
for a second volume, thinking that that would be the end. And then, of course, it just keeps on going. It grew like Topsy, essentially. And in fact, with the new edition, it's grown again. Earlier, we were talking about inflammation. Inflammation is a big thing these days. It's in, yes. you know, it's in the news a lot. I'd really like to hear your thoughts about inflammation, how it looks in Chinese medicine, what we do with it. What are you thinking about this stuff? Inflammation, particularly chronic inflammation, has been one of my major clinical and research interests for the last probably 10 years, I would say, just because it appears to be so phenomenally common. This is not just from a, a general medical point of view, but from a Chinese medical point of view. So many of my patients present with what we would describe as some type of heat complex, which is giving rise to at least a portion of their problem and a whole bunch of their symptoms. And well, let me go back a little bit. I've worked in a number of different practices. And one particular practice that I worked in was a general medical practice with GPs and osteopaths and a whole bunch of other people. And we used to cross-refer a great deal between each other. And I would end up getting a lot of patients with autoimmune diseases referred to me because the treatment, as you know, for autoimmunity, at least this is probably 20 years ago, wasn't especially good. You know, it was steroids, methotrexate, immunosuppressants, and patients would often end up feeling worse than they did initially with all of the drugs and they weren't really well controlled and so on and so forth. So I was exposed to a lot of patients with so-called autoimmune diseases. And one of the things that they generally had in common from a Chinese medicine point of view was this persistent heat. They had some degree of heat somewhere, Mm. whether it was in their warm, swollen, painful joints or in the skin problems that they had, which were sort of red and raised and whatever it might be, ulcerations of the oral cavity, uh, you know, the whole bunch of different examples of that. But heat was the consistent finding. And as you do as a practitioner, you think, okay, well, what do I do here? I have to clear away heat. We can clear away heat. That's not a problem. There's lots of ways to do that. And patients would often get somewhat better, but it always seemed to come back. You know, they'd stop the treatment, they'd go away, they'd come back a few months later, and everything had returned in much the same sort of fashion. So the problem seemed to me that it wasn't just getting rid of heat. What the hell is the heat doing? Where is it coming from in the first place? That was the initial thing that got me started on that. I had a one particular patient, a lady with an autoimmune disease called Bessay's disease, also known as Silk Road disease. You familiar with that? I'm not familiar with that one. Tell us about it. Very unpleasant disease. It runs, there's a strong genetic component to it. It runs in a band from China across to Turkey. And it was first described by a Turkish physician. Anyway, it's characterized by very unpleasant ulceration of the oral cavity, the genitals and the eyes, as well as joint pains and, you know, fevers and all the rest of this sort of stuff. Now, with this lady, you know, we were clearing heat, clearing heat to deal with her symptoms as much as possible. Nothing was happening. Nothing was really doing anything. And I ramped up the treatment quite considerably. We started using much more uh, hardcore medications. In fact, I ended up using a thing called Le Gongtang. Are you familiar with that? It's a... Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. One is Fripterygium Will 40. And it's actually used from a Western medical point of view. It's an immunosuppressant. It's a vine. And it's used fairly extensively in China for autoimmune problems. Isn't it a bit toxic? Yes, it is. You've got to monitor liver function while your patients are taking it. She was dedicated to treatment and she gave this a go. Nothing. We weren't getting anywhere. And I really like this patient. You know, sometimes you really have a special empathy with certain, you know, you try to have empathy with all your patients, of course. But this lady had some small kids and I really liked her a lot. And she was dedicated to 
her treatment as well. So we went back to original materials to try and find some answer. And as it turns out, this particular disease was described in the Jingwe, Jingwe Yalloway. It's a thing called hidden fox, huhua, huhua bing. Huhua bing, hidden fox yeah. disease. Yeah. Anyway, the solution given by Zhang Zhong Jing to this was a harmonizing prescription, a thing called gan chao xie xin tang. Aha. Uh-huh. And you think, okay, well, what's going on there? She's full of heat. She's burning up. You know, she's got inflamed joints. She's got all this ulceration. She's hot all the time. Gan chao xie xin tang is not really a heat clearing formula. What's the, the rationale? Very harmonizing, yes. And of course, Jung does not give any rationale for its use. But I thought, look, we'll give it a go and see what happens. I'm running out of ideas. So we tried it and it made a difference. Not a huge one, but it made a difference. What were the initial things that shifted from this? Well, she felt better in general. That sort of overall sense of well-being improved. She wasn't feeling so terribly distressed. Her oral ulcerations improved somewhat. Her joints, while still fairly uncomfortable, were also slightly better. She had one knee, which was really a problem, um, and her wrists were a problem, so it was terrible for her to pick up her children. And that improved slightly too. Now, these weren't dramatic by any means, but there was a qualitative shift that we hadn't been able to achieve doing anything else. And that really got me thinking about what was the rationale? What's behind this thinking here? Anyway, that started the process. I mean, basically, when you've got this sort of heat, you have to discover the source of the heat. That's the only way to really move forward with treatment. Where is that heat coming from and why is it being continually created over and over again? The more you clear it, fine, you get rid of it, but it comes back. Right. Something is smoldering. Something is smoldering. Something is continually producing this heat. So that was the starting point for thinking a bit more deeply about the problem. And then over the years, with a lot more research and a lot more clinical experience, I came to the conclusion that there are three major sources of this persistent heat in the body. And this seems to be reasonable. It's a model, so I'm not claiming that it's the answer by any means, but it's certainly been a very helpful guiding principle in my practice over the years. And the three sources of heat are, without going into too much technical detail... Well, you know what? This is a show for practitioners... We can go as deep and geeky as you want to go. Let me go back. There are actually six sources of persistent heat, but three that we can do something practical about, you know, we can actually intervene with in our practice. The three that we can't really do a whole lot about, there's a constitutional component. Patients who have a liver fire or a heart fire type constitution, they seem to be prone to developing heat type pathology as they get older. And there's not a whole lot you can really do about that in my experience. Diet is also extremely important and, you know, you just put too much fuel in. It's like a compost heap, which gets hot, basically. And my experience is manipulating people's diet is one of the hardest things to do in practice. I'm a real failure at getting people to change their diets. It's very, very difficult. The three things that we can do something about are what I call the primary pathological triad. It's number one, and that's probably the most important. The second is a lingering pathogen of some sort. Because once you've got a lingering pathogen in the system, you've got this constant conflict between the Zheng Qi and the pathogen, which creates its own source of heat, which creates the fire of battle, if you like, the conflict of battle. And the third one is this disconnection between the heart-kidney axis, which is the thermoregulation system of the body, the water-fire balance. So if that heart-kidney axis is out of whack for some reason, then either there's not enough water to control the fire 
or the fire just gets out of control on its own, of its own accord, and then you get this persistent level of heat. And they all have their own signatures, clinical signatures, which you can identify fairly clearly in practice, but they all end up causing rather similar looking clinical profiles. They all generate heat. They all generate ongoing heat. And unless you deal with the underlying reason, if you don't get rid of the lingering pathogen that's there, or you don't balance out the triad in some way, or try and reestablish the connection between the heart and kidney, basically all you're doing is putting a Band-Aid on the heat, and it will keep on coming back. Right, which is what Western medicine does. Yeah, basically. Exactly. In fact, most treatments do seem to just put a Band-Aid on it. And that's certainly what I was doing by just clearing heat all the time. It wasn't really doing the job. I'm not familiar with this primary triad that you're speaking about, or maybe I am, but I, I don't know it by that name. What are What is the primary triad? Basically, it's a, it's a very simple concept. It's essentially the relationship between the liver and spleen, one of the major primary axes of the body, and how that relationship, when broken down, starts to generate some type of heat. Right? So the triad is dysfunction of the liver, dysfunction of the spleen, and the generation of heat. It's those three points of the triangle. And the interesting thing about that is that once the triad of pathology is established, you know, once the liver and spleen are out of balance and the heat's been created, it tends to be self-perpetuating. Mm-hmm. And you can deal with one point on the triad, like clearing away the heat, but unless you deal with all three at once, the whole thing just keeps on going. It rolls around and reestablishes itself. This was one of my seminal insights, I think, as far as my own practice is concerned. You know, you would see patients with this mix of pathology, some sort of liver pathology, chi stagnation, some sort of spleen dysfunction, deficiency or damp or phlegm or something along those lines, and some type of heat, and focus on strengthening the spleen perhaps or regulating the liver or clearing away heat. And the patient would get a bit better but then it would come back again. That was a a consistent finding in my practice. You know, you really never got satisfactory long-term clinical outcomes. And it wasn't until I put this together in my own head, there's nothing new, of course. I mean, this has been described in the literature, but I got the hang of it that I started to see the rationale for the concept of harmonization and how that then fits back into what we were talking about before, Zhang Zhongjing's insight in using gancha shishintang to treat hidden fox disease, which is characterized by masses of heat. And this is a situation here with the liver and spleen imbalance where harmonization would be really helpful. Absolutely. Harmonization is the strategy. And of course, the primary pathological triad is so common because the modern lifestyle is essentially tuned to upsetting it. Sedentary life, you know, increasingly sedentary habits, which mucks up the spleen crummy diet, which also mucks up the spleen, certain medications, which muck up the spleen, financial, global, emotional, family stresses of various sorts, which impact on the liver, additives and preservatives in foods, medications also, which muck up the liver, you know, the endless looking at screens, which damages liver blood, people staying up late at night, which mucks up the liver by, because the liver is, of course, involved in regulating all of the various cycles, the day-night cycle, the menstrual cycle, and so on and so forth. So there's many ways to impede the liver and the spleen, largely lifestyle-based. And once that relationship's out of whack, then it's so easy to generate heat because you've got chronic chi stagnation. You often generate some degree of stagnant heat. 
when the spleen's out of whack, it generates damp, and the heat that's there can then generate can interact with the heat, and you've got damp heat. Heat will eventually damage yin, so you end up with yin deficiency plus the heat. So it becomes quite a, a complicated scenario. But I have found that the primary pathological triad is at the base of so much pathology in my clinical practice. Now, I can only speak for my practice. You know, everyone's practice is different. I have attracted over the years a certain type of patient. So I've got a certain clinical bias, of course. It may well be different in other people's practices, but the understanding of the primary pathological triad and, of course, lingering pathogens and the heart-kidney axis issue really revolutionized the way that I saw chronic inflammatory problems, and I saw a lot of them. It makes a lot of sense. I want to get into some of these other ones here in just a moment. And I can see how the Gansau Shishintang would really fit in there. And to me, this I got a big smile on my face because I've done a fair amount of study with Dr. Huang Huang. And one of his favorites for ulcers that go anywhere along mucosal membranes from the mouth to the anus to the vagina, Gansau uh, Shishintang. Yeah. And as we're having this conversation... It's great. I'm getting another point of view and going, oh, I can really see the, the beautiful harmonization. You know, it's a fairly gentle formula. Yes. And when we see these situations with lots of heat and inflammation and, you know, big sores and you're like, this is going to take care of that? What? It's extraordinary. It really makes us think about pathomechanisms. Absolutely. And, you know, this is the interesting thing I think about, for me, about Chinese medicine is the detective component of it. You know, the puzzle solving. Yes. But to solve puzzles, you need to have a lot of material. You need to have a lot of background material in your head that you can draw upon, a lot of different models to draw upon. You know, we were talking about this earlier before we got on the line about you've been in practice 30-ish years. I'm coming up. I'm in my 20th year. And I was saying how I was reading something recently, fairly basic stuff. I don't know how many nth time I've been reading it, but it comes through and I just, it's like, wow, I really get it. And I'm thinking, <laughs> why did it take this long to get it? You know, and it's, I think you're really putting your finger on something here. There's this iterative process. We have to see something again and again and again. Absolutely. In a variety of contexts. Chinese medicine is very much a holistic, or I should say holographic is what I meant to say, system, whereby each piece of information doesn't really mean anything on its own. It only means something in relationship to many other pieces of information. And as you gather experience and your, your information base expands, then each individual piece of information starts to take on a different meaning within the context of your expanding knowledge base. So many things you won't get until you've, been, you've seen hundreds or thousands of patients with a particular sort of problem, because you just don't have that background knowledge to draw upon. And it's like the pulse. You really can't get the pulse, I don't think, until you've matched pulse states with thousands of patients. It's that physical memory of something tied to an observation. And doing that over and over and over again is when you start to think, oh, yeah, now I can see where that pulse is coming from, you know, what that actually means, because I've seen it over and over and over and over and over again. Staying with this primary triad for a moment, we talked about the Gansau Shishintang. What are some of your other strategies, thoughts, or formulas, or even acupuncture for working on this particular piece? From a herbal point of view, the strategies are almost always drawn. Well, they're always drawn from the harmonizing group of formulas. But that's a really broad category 
of formulas. You know, and the intent of a harmonizing formula is to deal with all three points of the triad at the same time. Now, in practice, what you see is that patients will tend to skew towards one corner of the triangle, depending on where they are in their life. It's a dynamic process. So from treatment to treatment, it can change. And that's what you want it, you want it to do. You want it to change from time to time. So you can track where they're at, depending on their life, their diet, their emotional world, their work habits, and so on and so forth. They might swing between having more heat or more component of cheek constraint or more spleen issues. So the, all of those harmonizing prescriptions are aimed at dealing with different combinations, if you like, of the three pathologies. Now, another thing that uh, informed me in this particular area was the understanding of Xiao Chai Hutung. Now, everyone knows Xiao Chai Hutung, certainly one of the most interesting prescriptions in the Materia Medica, and one of the most widely used. In fact, my understanding is that in Japan, Xiao Chai Hutung is the number one formula manufactured in granules. I've heard that as well. And it used to, before I understood the process, it confused me. I couldn't work out what was going on because my understanding of Xiao Chai Hutung was that it's for Xiaoyang syndrome. You know, Xiaoyang syndrome being a post-infectious stage, a week or so after someone's had some upper respiratory tract problem or whatever it might be, they lapse into a Xiao Chai Hutung confirmation, which was fine. But it didn't explain why so many people were using Xiao Chai Hutung. And it wasn't until I started to look at this in the context of the primary pathological triad that it all started to make sense. And as it turns out, when you look at the triad, if you imagine a triangle with uh, liver pathology, spleen pathology, and heat, and we've got a whole bunch of harmonizing formulas which are aimed to deal with this particular mix of pathology, it turns out that Xiao Chai Tung does a bit of each of those. It regulates the liver. It's got Chai Hu in it, mm -hmm. so it regulates liver qi. It strengthens and protects the spleen. It has Ren Chen, Gan Chao. It clears heat. It has Huang Chin. So it does a bit of each of these necessary balancing steps without doing too much of any. So when you map formulas according to their therapeutic bias, Xiao Chai Hutang essentially maps pretty much right in the middle. So it's the most well-balanced of all of the harmonizing prescriptions when it comes to tuning up the primary pathological triad. And as it turns out, primary pathological triad is such an incredibly common mix of pathology in the clinic that you could actually go into clinic and just give everyone Xiao Chai Hutang and your strike rate would probably be pretty good, even without knowing what you're doing, because most people feel a bit better. It's like it's a broad spectrum harmonizer. Exactly. That's exactly right. If you've got a bit more heat in the system, you'd want to go somewhere else. Jiawei Xiaoya or Zhongman Fenxiaowan or something along those lines. I'm not familiar with that one. Uh, that's one of the most interesting formulas. It's used for drum distension. Drum distension is a type of ascites. Uh-huh. And what's the name of it again? Zhongman Fenxiaowan. Yeah, it's traditionally considered to be sort of a, it's a purgative formula, which clears away fluid from the abdomen. But it, in fact, is a harmonizing formula. The definition of harmonizing prescriptions is that they're often quite complicated prescriptions. They combine herbs with opposing actions. So they'll have very cold and very hot herbs together. For example, Chigao and Futsa or Ganjiang and Huangqin, you know, that mm -hmm. sort of thing. They'll combine herbs with opposing natures, bitter, sweet, and so on and so forth. Yeah, well, we see that one a lot in... Uh 
Ban Sha Shi Xin Tang. Oh, yes. I love that. I go through that stuff like crazy around here. Absolutely. That's been a mainstay of my practice over the years, too. And exactly for that very same reason, it balances the primary pathological triad. That's the way that I look at it. Right? It's got uh, Gan Jiang, it's got Huang Qin, those opposing herbs, they drive dynamic movement within the body. You've got the hot herbs, which elevate chi, lift up spleen chi, improve the spleen and its ability to move things upwards. You've got the bitter cold of the Huang group, the Huang Chins, Huang Lians, Huang Bai's, which cause chi to move downwards. So automatically you're setting up this sort of dynamo of movement, this physical driving physical movement of chi. I sometimes think of it as like really turning a heavy flywheel. These are the herbs that give it some torque, really give it some energy to set it in motion. Yes, indeed. Well, that's how all of these harmonizing formulas actually really work. In my, That's the way that I think about them anyway. They drive physical processes rather than just thinking about them tonifying the spleen or regulating the liver or clearing away heat. They stimulate movement. And in fact, I think most of the really interesting formulas in the Materia Medica do much the same sort of thing. They work like acupuncture. They drive the movement of chi, essentially. They're really dynamic. Yeah, Shui Fu Jiutang does the same thing. It's not a harmonizing formula, but, you know, the combination of Jiagun and Niu Shi together. Niu Shi pulls things down, Jiagun lifts them up. You've got the pivot, the dynamo. Then you tonify the blood a bit and you move the blood and you move the chi with, with that formula. It's, it's another one, kind of a big heavy hitter when you think about it. It's moving everything. I couldn't imagine a practice without that one. That's been another mainstay of my practice over the years. I'm curious about the heart kidney connection. Is this, mm. is this something that you would say is more emotionally based? Um, or, very often, yes. Tell us a bit about what you see with that one and which formulas help set that particular mechanism correct again. To go backwards a little bit, the heart kidney axis and the liver spleen axis are the two main axes of the body. Now, the liver spleen axis is for generating the daily chi we require for daily activities and physiology, normal physiology, whereas the heart-kidney axis is your, your deeper axis. It's the relationship between your template, your jing, and how you perceive the world through the shen and how normal your perception is, essentially. The liver-spleen axis is easily mucked up. You know, most people have experienced that. You know, you get upset and you get a knot in your stomach. That's a liver-spleen disharmony. There you go. Mm -hmm. But the heart-kidney axis being so critical to our ability to form memories and our ability to see the world clearly and therefore reproduce, which is, you know, ultimately what it's all about from an evolutionary point of view, is a very robust axis, very hard to break, very hard to disrupt. But it gradually becomes weakened as you get older, as your yin is consumed by living, the heart-kidney axis does become more fragile and is easier to disrupt. However, in younger people who are robust, it takes a great deal of emotional trauma to really make a significant impact on it. And this is where it gets interesting in clinic because there's a group of disorders which occur when someone has had a major psychological trauma. Now, this can be a major car accident or uh, some type of severe emotional shock. Right? The heart kidney axis is disrupted by severe emotional trauma. So what we observe is the development of certain types of pathology, which reflect a disruption of heart-kidney axis, generally six to nine months after a big shock. Someone's spouse dies or they were in a car accident and they thought they were going to die, whatever it might be. 
in Australia some years ago, we had some very big bushfires in Melbourne called the King Lake fires. And, you know, a lot of people were killed. And we saw some patients after that who had terrible problems with their heart kidney access because of the terrible trauma of that experience. So PTSD would fall into this category as well then? Yes, PTSD certainly can. But there's a very specific set of physical symptoms that emerge out of this. And very often they overlap with endocrine problems in Western medical sense. So for example, dysfunction of the thyroid is quite a common experience. So hypothyroid problems, you know, be one example of disconnection between the heart and kidney. The kidney water is not containing heart fire anymore. So we end up with this sort of flaring of heart fire, which manifests in all the heat, the tachycardia, the insomnia, tremors, the shen disturbances, and so on and so forth, which are characteristic of the body's ability to regulate its internal temperature. People get really hot and can't cool down. Then they get cold and can't warm up. So they have dysfunction of thermoregulation. Would you also see this to some degree with hypothyroid people? But in this case, it's more that the heart fire has been extinguished, and so you've got yes. more kidney you water. It can go the other way as well. When the heart-kidney axis gets disrupted, and this is discussed in the Shanghan Lun as well, I think it's a Shanghan, when you get disruption to the heart-kidney axis, it can go one of two ways into what's called heat transformation or cold transformation. The heat transformation is more common in my experience. But the cold transformation is certainly there as well. And they ultimately look to all intents and purposes like heart and kidney indeficiency or heart and kidney yang deficiency. So yes, cold transformation is common. In women, it seems to be much more common that it is the heat transformation. And in men, it's slightly more common that it's a cold transformation. I'm thinking about so many women I've seen in my practice who have thyroid issues. Yeah. And primarily hypothyroid. Maybe they're just a little hypothyroid. It's a little off. And I hadn't put this together until we're having this conversation right now. But I'm wondering if there's, as women have often experienced trauma, that there's some hidden trauma there that's depressing that heart fire, that's increasing that kidney water, and, and there, there goes the heart-kidney axis. What actually often happens, it seems, is that the initial response to some sort of traumatic experience if that's what's causing it. It's not always that. You have to remember that as you get older, the heart-kidney axis becomes more fragile. Right? After 40, half your yin's gone. So the axis is really robust in your 20s and 30s, but as you hit your 40s, 50s, and 60s, the axis becomes naturally more fragile. So it takes less and less of a trauma to actually start to disrupt it. Even without any sort of traumatic experience, the axis ultimately becomes disrupted anyway. You know, one of the manifestations of a poor relationship between the heart and kidney is the inability to form short-term memories because the heart-kidney axis is critical in the ability to form memory in the first place. You know, it's the relationship between the spleen, heart, and the kidneys, um, the spleen being the perception or being the, the focus of, of attention on something to be remembered, the shen, the perception, of course, and the storage in the kidney. But if that process isn't working very well, then people can't form these short-term memories. And of course, that's incredibly common as you get older and older. That's just a natural part of that disruption. Hi, this is Dr. Sky Sturgeon with Mayway Herbs. So the basic question is, how do I know how many tea pills to prescribe? The answer is, it depends. Mayway's standard dose is 24 pills per day, but you should rely on your clinical judgment. 
if 24 pills seems like too many, realize that 24 pills is about equal to 9 to 12 grams of a raw herb formula. Also, you may want to adjust the dosage up or down depending on your patient's weight because the standard dose is for a 125-pound adult. Other factors to consider are the severity of the condition, whether the condition is acute or chronic, excess or deficiency, your patient's age, constitution, the presence of other health issues, and other factors based on your clinical assessment. For more information, check out Determining the Right Dosage for Your Patient on Mayway.com by Laura Strokes. So when you're thinking chronic inflammation, and it's the heart-kidney axis, what are some of the kind of issues that show up? And then what are some of the formulations that you found helpful? Well, in terms of inflammation, it's almost always, of course, the uh, heat transformation, the yin damage component of it. So not enough kidney water, heart fire starts to flare. But of course, one of the things that happens with heat is that it, it's a very yang pathogen. So it tends to dissipate over time. So even though if someone had quite a significant degree of heat initially, that will naturally wane as time goes by. So the more chronic the pathology becomes, the more muted the heat component becomes as well. When there is this persistent heat as a result of the heart-kidney axis, there's a number of ways you can address the problem. But my favorite is the standard formulation. It's Tianwang Bushindan is one of another one of the standout formulas. Oh, oh man. You know, I order that stuff in by the wheelbarrow load. That is one yeah. of my that is an amazing prescription. It is. It's a remarkable prescription. And it's for exactly this heart kidney disconnection or a weakening of the heart kidney axis. A very, very common problem, of course, as you well know. Yes. As I said, it doesn't have to be traumatic. As you get older, it weakens naturally. So a small upset can often be enough to tip the balance. But in a younger person in their 20s, you would expect to find some more significant trauma, unless, of course, they were born with some uh, diminishment of their jing in the first place. So if they didn't have the full complement to start off with, then their heart-kidney axis is by definition going to be somewhat weaker to start off. As far as production of inflammation is concerned, that's actually quite a minor one. That causes a particular type of problem, which, as I said, often manifests as thyroid problems or pancreatic problems or reproductive problems, but mostly thyroid and pancreatic. So diabetes, type 2 diabetes, will often be along those lines as well, but most commonly thyroid. But of those three causes of inflammation that we can influence, the primary pathological triad is by far the commonest. And as it turns out, unfortunately, the most difficult to deal with because, you know, the patient has to participate pretty substantially in the process. Whereas in the case of a lingering pathogen, they often don't have to. If you get rid of the pathogen, the problem often will resolve. The patient doesn't have to do anything. So it's quite, an, quite a different sort of situation. So lingering pathogen tends to be less of a, a lifestyle issue. Very often it does. It depends on the, exactly the pathogen and where it's located. But certain sorts of pathogens, in fact, the most common pathogens, are quite easy to deal with. And if you can dislodge the pathogen from where it's hidden in the body, then homeostasis takes place and the body just looks after itself without the patient have to, having to do exercise or change their diet. Would these lingering pathogens be like from injuries or would they be from having had a bad cold or a flu? Where do these tend to come from? 
Well, the most common is a, is a poorly managed infection. So a wind heat or a wind cold or something along those lines, a lung heat pathology, it can be anything, it doesn't matter, that was badly managed is a very common cause of a lingering pathogen. And you can think about, you know, it's fairly obvious when you think about it. You know, if, if you've got a wind heat pathology, for example, from a Chinese medicine point of view, what are you trying to do? You're trying to open the pores up and push the pathogen off the surface and away, get rid of it that way. So you're venting it from the body to the outside. The way that treatment goes now is that people will often resort to antibiotics, for example, or bitter cold herbs, and they have the opposite effect of what we're trying to achieve. Bitter cold substances, of which antibiotics are one type, you know, bitter cold uh, substances, they shut pores, the coldness closes pores and pulls things into the body. You know, we use that when we're using huang chin or da huang to purge out through the bowel. But that's exactly the opposite of what we're trying to achieve when we're using a, a venting prescription like yin chao san, for example. So a great way to get a lingering pathogen, one of the most common, is to have a bad treatment. You know, a poorly managed acute infection will frequently go on to cause a lingering pathogen. There are many other ways as well. People who go to the gym when they've got something, trying to sweat it out, for example. They've got a finite resource of chi to overcome the pathogens, but if they're burning it up in activity, there's much less left for the immune system to use, and that's another way that pathogens can occur. It's not always the result of an infection. It can be related to medications. Certain medications act like a pathogen on the body. Essentially, what a lingering pathogen is from this perspective is a persistent and abnormal immune response. The immune system is set up to work and then it doesn't switch off properly. And so that's signaled by a small group of persistent symptoms, which are fairly easy to identify. But basically, regardless of what the etiology is, the immune system, rather than going back to its normal resting phase, is to continually doing something which it shouldn't be doing. And this manifests with various sorts of heat. How do you like to treat these particular lingering pathogens? You vent them. You have to get them out. With, with a more harmonizing? So you go more with venting. Yes, venting is the way to eliminate a pathogen. It depends on where the pathogen is. This is quite a, a large topic, as you can imagine. Well, yes, and, and it's discussed in the Shanghai Lun quite a bit as well where sometimes you'll, you'll want to get it out, sometimes you'll want to take it in and, you know, th like through the stool. Uh, it depends on which uh, the Liu Jing, the six levels it's lodged in. Yes, and, and that certainly is a great starting point. But I found it rather confusing when I was confronted with patients who clearly had some sort of post-infectious process. And that's why the whole concept of the lingering pathogen came about essentially as a, as a simplified way of trying to understand what's actually going on with these pathological processes. The Shanghai Lun's a fantastic piece of work, but it didn't clearly reflect what was going on in my clinical practice. And without going into a lot of technical stuff, because it's, you know, it's a huge topic, I teach this, and it takes two days to get a, a start on the lingering pathogen concept. But it's a really important one, and of course, it's really, at least when I was training, it was, it was undervalued and skipped over somewhat, and it took me years of trying to nut out what was going on with some of my more difficult patients to work out that, in fact, what they ended up having was a lingering pathogen. So since then, I've kind of put together a, a simplified model of how this works, which, again, reflects my own clinical experience. Other people's are going to be quite different. 
because it's going to vary depending on your geographical location, you know, the predominant environment that you're in. Oh, of course. Yeah. Um, and I live in a temperate, you know, fairly mild climate and the lingering pathogens tend to reflect that. But it might be different in Russia or, you know, the tropics of Central Africa. This is one of the amazing things about Chinese medicine is we so have to take the context, not just of the person, but their lifestyle, where they live, all those other influences. It's, uh, yeah, yeah, it makes it fun and incredibly annoying at times to try to get these things dialed in. Well, it does. But having said that, I've also taught this lingering pathogen business in different places in, in the US and in Norway and London you know, places with quite different climates. And it has been the experience of the participants in the class to have a great deal of recognition of what I was talking about in in their own patients. So there's a fair bit of overlap, even with different climactic situations. So when you're looking to do this venting of the pathogen, are you also at the same time giving some support to the normal chi so you've got something to work with? Absolutely. You can, and many of the formulas that are of the venting class do exactly that because you have to not only encourage the pathogen to move from the inside to the outside, which is the main strategy. You know, you got to open the pores, give it an exit point, and then encourage it to move from where it's stuck, which is most commonly the chi level, as it turns out, in my experience, which is lucky because it's actually quite easy to vent a pathogen from the chi level. What are some of the ways that you like to do that? Again, it depends on the type of pathogen and where it is within the particular level because there are different zones within each level. So the chi level, for example, is essentially the zone between the surface, the tai yang, the wei level, and the deeper internal organ systems, the yin and the blood levels. But within that, you've got different levels. So if a pathogen is sitting up quite high within the chi level and is much closer to the surface, it tends to influence the lungs and the tai yin, lungs and colon predominantly because they're close to the surface. If the pathogen sits down deeper, it tends to influence the spleen a bit more. So you get a lot more gastrointestinal symptomatology. So it depends on where the pathogen is and what type it is. So damp heat pathogens, by nature, tend to sink down deeper in within the levels, because the nature of damp is to sink, whereas straight heat pathogens tend to sit up high because heat tends to rise upwards. So if you're dealing with a straight heat pathogen in the chi level, Actually, it turns out a very easy situation to deal with, even though they can persist for months, if not years. The herbal solution is a thing called Juya Shigautang. Juya Shigautang. That's the one that I like the best. There are a number of ways to do it. But Juya Shigautang seems to be the most reliable in my experience. Juya Shigautang. So there's Juya, which is a, a wonderful peat clearing herb. Shigal, very strongly heat clearing. What else is in that? Juye Shigatang, it also has, let me just <laughs> refer to my textbooks here. I'll look it up and tell you exactly. Ah, great. Yeah. You know, it's, a, <laughs> I can, it's so funny. After years of practice, I will sometimes, I just think of a formula by itself, but don't always think about what's in it. Yeah. And this is one of those ones because you don't ever modify this. It's never mucked around with. Okay. So it has Danjuye, Shigao, uh, Banxia, Maidong, Renchen and Jigansha. So it's a modification of Xiao Chaiutang, mm-hmm. essentially. Yeah. And it only appears once. I think it's in clause 116 of the Xiao Ch- of the Shanghan Lun. So it's it's really under regarded in my experience. But 
I have found it to be highly reliable for this particular problem. It's only used for this particular problem, but I've found consistently if someone has what I diagnose ultimately as a heat pathogen in the qi level and we give them juya shigao tongue, then all being equal and without any other complicating factors, within a week or two, the problem is resolved very often. Wow. It's quite dramatic in many cases because unless the pathogen is vented in somewhere, it's got to get out. And unless it's gotten out, the whole thing just keeps on kicking on. And that brings us right back to the beginning of this conversation. You see these patients, they've got this ongoing thing. You can clear some heat. They're better for a while, but it comes back. And so this is, this is, this is what you got to do. You got to really get into that level. Your way of thinking about this is really helpful that we've got these three different places to look and begin to think about where do I start? Yeah, I found it very useful. But again, let me just stress that this is my experience and other people's is likely to be different. There's probably other sources of this persistent heat, but ones that, you know, may be more common in, you know, somewhere else. I don't know. I'm sure that's the case. We all have our own particular clinical gaze, if you will, our way of interacting with things. I find for myself, just in having this conversation with you, that having these three sort of buckets to think about, it just opens up lots of possibilities. Are there other ways of looking at it? Are there other ways of going about it? Yes, of course. This just seems really doable, at least given the clinical experience that I've had. It simplifies the analysis of what are often quite complicated situations. Because very often, patients who come in with this, with one of the, or more of these problems, you know, they've had a problem for some time. They've often been through the ringer, the medical ringer. They've often medicated. So when they present, there's a lot of different things going on. So this is a way of, I've found this helpful as a way of clearing away some of the complexity and getting and, and focusing my attention, if you like, on the underlying important things that need to be addressed rather than just looking at symptoms and, and attempting to do that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it's made a big difference. You know, certainly it doesn't work in every case by any means, but I would say that um, it's much more satisfactory. In, unless you have some other comments about this, I'd like to turn to your book for a moment. Sure. Our friends at Eastland Press are, are bringing out, tell us a bit about the book. It's a, it's a reprinting, as I recall. It's a second edition. A second edition, even better. Yeah, it's a new edition. So it's a fairly substantially expanded edition. What I should say is that the first volume of the, there's three books in the original series. The first one came out in 1997, so it's like 20 years old now. And I'd been in practice for 10 years by that stage. And I was still pretty green. You know, after 10 years, you're really pretty green. So the first volume was essentially derived from Chinese source materials. You know, and as I mentioned before, it was a sort of a compilation of uh, lecture notes that I'd been compiling for a number of years for courses that I'd been giving at various schools. But it was after that that it really, you know, when you start to get more and more experience, you start to see the disconnect between the Chinese materials and what at least I was seeing in my practice. There wasn't a lot of overlap. So that first volume, I don't think was particularly good in hindsight. I mean, it, it was helpful by all means. It was certainly a great starting place when you're looking at trying to get a grips to uh, with internal medicine pathology. But my thinking on a lot of those problems has really changed a lot since then. 
So the new edition basically has rewritten the first volume pretty substantially and the second one also with the hindsight of 30 years of clinical practice and the addition of some collaborators as well who have also put their inputs into um, the new edition. So it's not just mine and Jane Littleton's input anymore. There are other people who have contributed fairly substantially to the text. Who else has helped out with this? Well, my partner, Catherine, who's been in practice for about 20 years now. She specializes in women and children's pathologies. Another long-term practitioner, a friend of mine called Mark Bailey. These are the main contributors. And their contribution is essentially they've edited the text. They've gone through and pointed out things that they think don't necessarily gel with their experience, enhance things where they think this is particularly useful, and so on and so forth, basically. There are other people as well who've contributed little bits and pieces here and there. And ultimately, what I would hope, this would be my ultimate dream, is that a book like this, you know, a big sort of compendium, like an encyclopedia, really, becomes the collective work of the profession rather than, you know, the work of a few people. Ideally, the experience of many is compiled into a book that reflects our clinical world in the West. Because it's not, it's different to China. It's not the same. You know, our diets, our lifestyles, our habits, our cultural background is different. And this produces different types of pathology. There's no question about that. Well, you know, I, I love that you've started with your experience early on teaching. You brought in things that you learned in China. You know, what a great start that was 20 years ago with this book. Yeah. And now you've got all kinds of other experience that's baked into this new edition, along, along with the experience of other practitioners. Like you said, it's, it's not just you. It's a community of Western practitioners, in a sense, or a small community of Western practitioners that have taken this stuff, worked it, distilled it, and now we're going to have the uh, second edition. When does it come out? Well, we're still working on it, but hopefully this year, all going well, you know, the, you have this, this, this ideal in it. Things have a way of not really happening like that, but we're four years down the track and I think it's going to have to happen this year. And we're on track for that, I think, at this point. Like we were talking earlier, it's, it's that last rereads and dotting the I's and crossing the T's. And, but that's such a huge piece of the book. I mean, nobody really, anyone who reads a book, I think so often it's easy for us to think, oh, yeah, someone just wrote this and, you know, they run it through a spell check or whatever. But there's so much work that goes into the very end. Unless you've done a book, you just don't know that last bit that takes so long. Oh, yeah. And when you're dealing with a book of thousands of pages, just physically reading it and reading it closely is a huge and demanding task on its own. I should just point out one other thing that's changed in this edition is that the source materials from the first edition and the second, from the first book, the first volume, and the second volume, the source materials that I use from China have improved immensely as well, right? There's a whole lot of new stuff that's come out in internal medicine in China recently that's really significantly better than the original materials that I was using and a much a much broader range of stuff too. So there's a, the bibliography of this new edition is huge. A lot of really interesting stuff is happening in China as well with Chinese medicine now. Will, are there any closing thoughts that you have that you'd like to leave us with before we say goodbye here today? Look, I, I would say that over the, the course of my career, 
I've noted a couple of things in particular. We're certainly, we're getting a lot better at it in general. And I think what that means is we're getting much more familiar with what our strengths and limitations are, you know, so we can focus on the things that we do well rather than trying to do everything and, and not doing so well. You know, so as a profession, I think we're getting better at identifying what we can do. And that that really works into integrating much better into the, the health system in general. You know, I've never liked the epithet that we go by, which is the alternative medicine set. You know, as far as I'm concerned, there's only medicine and it either works or it doesn't. In this country, at least, we're getting to the point where we're becoming more just medicine and we do certain things well. We don't do other things very well, but we're getting recognized for the things that we do well and we're doing more of it. In, in a much more interesting context within the hospital system from time to time. That's ramping up quite a bit now as it happens. Yeah, happening in the States as well. That's one thing that I've noticed. And that's really, I think, incredibly positive. You know, if we can overcome the unrealistic expectations that a lot of practitioners used to have. You know, and when I got out of school in 1987, I didn't know what I could do and what I couldn't do. I'd been told that we could do anything. That just leads to masses of disappointments and pretty poor clinical outcomes when you try to do things you can't really do very well. Knowing what you can do and what you can't is yeah, that's right. It's really important. It was a long learning experience to find out where to focus our talents, and it made for a much more satisfactory clinical experience too when you get good results consistently. For everybody, the patient and the practitioner. Absolutely. And we've tried to, I think, incorporate some of that experience into the clinical handbooks to the new edition in particular to help to guide people more realistically. Well, I look forward to reading it. It's one thing to read the stuff from China and then it's another thing to read a Westerner's actual clinical experience. Yeah. Will, thank you so much. I really appreciate you being on Geological today. Maybe we'll do a part two sometime. Maybe maybe after the book comes out, we can uh, yeah, sure. sit Love down to. and dig into something there. Absolutely. My pleasure. I hope you have enjoyed this episode of Geological. If so, I would really appreciate it if you would take a moment now and head over to www.geological.com and click on the review on iTunes button to rate and review the show. Rating and reviewing the show helps other practitioners to find this material. If you have benefited from listening to these episodes, please take a moment to help us out with a review over on iTunes. Also, if you have ideas for a show that you would like to hear or recommend a practitioner to be on the show, you can send an email from the website. Thanks for listening and be sure to tune in again next week for a new show.